Uh, glad to have you here this morning. Uh, we are going to be diving in uh, to a topic that we could easily spend months on, and I get about 45 minutes. Uh, so listen intently. Um, there is a wealth of knowledge uh, rolling around with this question slash statement. Jesus rose. Jesus rose. Jesus rose. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we dive in, uh, I wanted to talk about who this is for this morning. Uh, you're going to fall into one of two different camps. Either you're a skeptic this morning or you're a believer. And I know some of you want to be in that third camp, um, but uh, <laughs> let me just describe these two for you. First of all, uh, the skeptic. A skeptic is simply someone who doubts. It's not in any way a derogatory term, anything like that. It's just someone who has doubts. Maybe you call yourself a, a Christian, but are skeptical about the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. Uh, maybe you don't call yourself a Christian and think that there's absolutely no possible way that Jesus rose from the dead. Either way, you're a skeptic. You're doubting. You're, you're unsure of it. Or you're sure that it's not true. Um, so for the skeptic this morning, for you, the concept of a resurrected Christ is a challenge. So my encouragement to you this morning is to listen today with an open mind. For the believer, this morning I want to give your faith a firm foundation. I was uh, hanging out with some friends on Friday, and uh, all of us, uh, there were five of us together, and all of us were believers, and so I tossed out this question just to kind of, you know, I had done some of my studying, and you know, it was like, all right, let's put this to the test. You know, so I asked them, okay, did Jesus rise from the dead? Or I said, you know, I, I'm assuming we all believe that Jesus rose from the dead because we're all believers here. Now, how do you know? And so we dove into this discussion, and I think what grieved me the most as we were sitting here discussing this is that um, a couple of them kept coming back to, well, you can't really know. You just have to take it on faith. And I was like, you're selling yourself short. It, that should not be good enough for you. Give your faith a firm foundation. Yes, there is the aspect of faith, uh, but faith is taking uh, what you know to be true and, and putting it into action. Like the guy, uh, the tightrope walker, who uh, had a tightrope put across Niagara Falls and uh, you know, asked the crowd that had gathered, hey, who thinks I can walk across. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So off he goes. He walks across Niagara Falls on this tightrope. He comes back and uh, gets a wheelbarrow and puts uh, 150 pounds worth of potatoes in there. Says, who thinks I can go across with this uh, wheelbarrow? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So off he goes. Sure enough, no problem. And he comes back. And he dumps out the potatoes and says, who thinks I can push a, a person across Niagara Falls? In this wheelbarrow. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right. Where's my volunteer? <laughs> and it's taking something that you may believe in and putting your money where your mouth is and saying, you know what? Yeah, I'll volunteer. I really believe in this. And that's where faith comes in uh, in the Christian walk. But it's, it's not blind faith. It's not faith that is unsubstantiated. It's faith that has something to stand on. So that's what I'm wanting to give you this morning, giving your faith a firm foundation. Let the evidence today be an encouragement to you. But most importantly, remember that this is not just for you. As you listen, keep in mind who you're going to be sharing this with. As you listen this morning, keep in mind who you're going to be sharing this with. Let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll dive in. God, I ask that you just take every single heart in this room and just open it up. Open it up to some new thoughts, some new ideas, 
uh, or just a, a retelling of something that they've heard before but maybe have forgotten. God, let us walk out of this building with confidence that you did rise from the dead. And God, let us take that and, and be zealous to share that with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be spending some time there. But at the same time, we're going to be looking at uh, extra-biblical accounts. Um, the Bible is one of many different resources used to answer this question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Um, but what we're going to start out doing is looking at some things that we know. Um, we're we're going to start with some facts that, that pretty much everybody can agree on and go from there. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me, Paul, also as to one abnormally born. So here Paul is pointing out the vital importance of this fact. Did Jesus rise from the dead? The vital importance of this. So we're going to start with some things that we know. This is what Paul points uh, the Corinthians to. He says, look, let's go back to the basics. Uh, if we start out with what we know, it also gives us uh, a starting location for our discussions. You know, I could try to, to talk to Timmy about whether or not this is the best green shirt in the world, and he may disagree with me, but can we at least start out by agreeing that this shirt is green? Yeah. Awesome. Great. You know, so, th so that we have some place to start, we're going to take some facts and say, okay, whether or not we both believe that this is the best green shirt, at least we can agree that it's a green shirt. Now, some of you might be out there, no, it's actually kind of olive or, you know, whatever. Um, but most people would say, okay, at least we can, you know, resign to that. Fine. Let's start there. Um, as I just mentioned, you will never get 100% certainty or agreement uh, on historical facts. You know, there's, there's a group of people out there that are still convinced to this day that no one ever landed on the moon. And, and they're, they're firmly convinced of it. Most people would say, you know, they're, they're wacko. You know, we have enough evidence, uh, enough proof to support this theory that, yes, uh, people did land on the moon. But there, there's always going to be a few people that are like, you know what, I'm not listening to the evidence. You know, I've got my own theories, and, and they're not going to listen to it. So as we talk about these things that we know, realize that this is, by and large, most people. And as we look at these pieces of evidence, evidence also, I want you to realize these two things. First of all, that one piece of evidence by itself is not enough to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. One piece of evidence by itself is not enough to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead. We're going to be looking at many different ones. And one of them by itself, that's not enough. You can say, oh, well, the, the tomb was empty. Yeah, well, there's a lot of empty tombs around. Okay. Well, you know, and you're going to have to take them and put them all together. But at the same time, discounting one piece of evidence is not enough to conclude that Jesus did not rise from the dead. So you've got it in both ways. 
You know, someone else can say, well, you know, I don't think the tomb really was empty. Okay, but what about these other pieces of evidence over here that all support the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? So we're going to have to take all these pieces of evidence, look at them, and say, what kind of conclusions can we draw? And this morning I'm going to give you, uh, oh, I'm not going to give it to you yet. I don't want to give it to you yet. Uh, I'm going to give you four minimal facts. And um, these minimal facts are called minimal facts because, uh, first of all, they're very well evidenced. And second of all, uh, nearly every scholar accepts them. So we're talking believers and non-believers. Okay, across the board, regardless of what people believe about Christ, regardless of what people believe about the Bible, regardless of what people believe about Christianity, they agree to these facts. Again, not 100%, but most. Most scholars agree to these. So, number one, oops, sorry. Number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Minimal fact, number one, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Yes, we have the four Gospels that talk about that. Uh, Acts and many of the New Testament letters also point to this. Um, but I wanted to show you three extra-biblical uh, writings that pointed to this fact as well. Uh, first of all, this guy Josephus, uh, who was a, a, a historian that lived just after the time of Jesus. Uh, he was born not long after Jesus died, uh, was resurrected, supposedly, and uh, went into heaven. And he said, uh, Pilate, upon hearing him accused uh, by men of the highest standing amongst us, had condemned him to be crucified. So this is an extra-biblical account um, that points to the fact that Jesus was crucified. Oops, I'm going too fast. Tacitus, uh, another historian that lived just after Jesus, uh, said, uh, Christus, from whom the name uh, had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our uh, procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So, again, pointing to the extreme penalty, which at that time was crucifixion. And uh, finally, Lucian of uh, Samosata, who uh, was a satirist, so he, he walked around mocking Jesus and Christians, and he lived about 100 years after Jesus. So this is important to note, that this is a guy that was totally against Christianity, mocked the Christians, made fun of them. That was like his job. He, he walked around, spoke, and just poked fun at Christianity and Christians. He said, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, uh, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. So here are three pieces of extra-biblical evidence that point to the fact that uh, there was this guy, Jesus, who died and was crucified. Um, a commonly used uh, but not very scholastically sound argument is uh, something called the swoon theory, which uh, people say that Jesus actually didn't die. That, you know, sure, he was crucified and uh, he was up on the cross, but when they thought that he was dead, they, they pulled him down. He wasn't actually dead. He had just, like, passed out because of all the pain that he was going through. Uh, you know, and then they buried him, and he just kind of hung out there. And a couple of days later, he came back too. He was alive the whole time, but he wasn't dead. He came back too, got out of the tomb, and then appeared to everybody. Um, but like I said, it's not scholastically sound. Uh, very few people hold to this. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in dialoguing with somebody about this, we can point to these extra-biblical accounts of people that said, look, he was, he was crucified. Um, and um, also, I mean, if you think about it this way, would a stumbling, heavy-wounded, malnourished man look like a conqueror of death? Probably not. You know, after, after being through everything he went through, if he had stayed alive that whole time, he would have been very wounded, very weary, and wouldn't have shown up looking like the conqueror of death that he was. We'll get into that a little bit more uh, later. But fact number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Most scholars agree to this. Tons of evidence to support this. Fact number two. Jesus' disciples sincerely believed 
that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. They sincerely believed it. Uh, how do we know this? First of all, they claimed it. We, we have the whole New Testament where the disciples claimed, yes, we saw the risen Jesus over and over again. And then second of all, their lives were radically transformed. Radically changed by them saying that they saw uh, the risen Jesus. No one doubts the sincerity of a martyr, regardless of what they believe. Uh, 9-11, we had some people that, that died for what they believed in. I don't think you'd find anyone that would doubt that they were sincere about what they believed in. Now, whether their beliefs were well-founded or not is an entirely different matter, but we can all agree that they were very sincere as they got into those airplanes, as they were ready to give their lives. They were sincere about their belief. And the disciples also, every single one of them, were martyred for their faith. So we can say with certainty that they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. Uh, think about this as well. This is a quote from a book uh, called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And it says, Contemporary martyrs die for what they believe to be true. The disciples of Jesus died for what they knew to be either true or false. The disciples were right there. They knew with certainty that Jesus either died and rose again, or that he didn't rise. And whatever they believed in, they, they knew what the truth really was. They knew it. And none recanted. Think about if one of them had recanted. What would have happened to the church? Where would we be at today? In a lot of trouble. It'd look a little differently. Fact number three. The church persecutor, Paul, was suddenly changed. Suddenly changed. We have lots of evidence to, to point to the fact uh, that he was a persecutor of church, that he was a Jew that lived around that time. Uh, and we have plenty of evidence, biblical and extra-biblical, to point to the fact that he was martyred, um, that he was tortured for his faith. And the interesting thing uh, about Paul versus a lot of others is that uh, in the book of Acts and in Paul's writings, we have uh, both saying that he came to Christ not because someone else told him that Christ had been risen from the dead. He rather came to Christ because of a first-hand account. He said, I have seen the risen Christ, and that's why I'm different today. Very different than somebody else saying, oh yeah, I came to Christ because someone had a real convincing argument or they talked to me or, you know, I just came to know it in my heart. He said, no, I saw him. So that's a huge claim um, and, a, and a very strong piece of evidence as well. Most scholars, again, will not uh, argue against this. Fact number four. The skeptic James, the brother of Jesus, was also suddenly changed. In 1 Corinthians 15.7, we see, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. We have plenty of uh, biblical and extra-biblical evidence to, to show that James, the brother of Jesus, was also martyred for what he believed in. So here's another guy who uh, was doubting Jesus. All throughout Jesus' ministry, James doubted who Jesus was. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And something happened. Jesus died. After that, something happened. And now, James totally radically transformed, radically changed. Here we've got two people that were super sold out to one thing and then radically changed. So what happened? What caused them to change? So we've got these four pieces of evidence that we know that Again, most scholars, Christian, non-Christian, regardless of what they believe, will agree to these facts. And we have tons and tons of evidence to support 
these four facts. So you look at these four, and now you have to go, okay, well, what does this lead us to? What does this bring us to? We're going to look at one last piece of evidence and then start drawing some conclusions. Now, this last one is another, uh, another fact, but it's, I'm not calling it a minimal fact because it's not as widely accepted by scholars. However, there is tons of evidence to support this last fact. And this last fact is the empty tomb. The fact that there was an empty tomb. So, let's take a look at this. Uh, first of all, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. That's something that people toss out a lot. Maybe they just, oh, you know what, we, we got our hairs crossed and we went the wrong way and, you know, it, it, yeah, we, we just went to the wrong tomb. Well, first of all, it doesn't explain uh, away these other facts. Uh, and the Jews would have pointed it out as well. Uh, you know what, the, the actual tomb is over here. Did you, did you catch that? Yeah, it's, it's right here. Let me show it to you. Um, the tomb's location was, was well known. Now, I don't know where Steve Jobs was buried. I don't know if you know where Steve Jobs was buried. So, so let's, let's go in another route. Many of you know where John F. Kennedy was buried. Many of you. Many of you have been there and seen where John F. Kennedy was buried at Arlington National Seminary, uh, Cemetery in uh, Washington, D.C., so, uh, if we start walking forward with this idea that maybe John F. Kennedy was raised from the dead, and, and, and someone said, oh, well, you know, maybe they went to the wrong spot. You know, maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Well, we could easily all go and say, no, 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 this is where John F. Kennedy was buried. Is there a body there? Is there not? And, and take a look at that. In the same way, uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, was widely known. His tomb, people knew where that was. Uh, so they would have been easily able to go to it and say, you know what, no, we, you got the wrong tomb. Second, the Jerusalem factor. Let me talk to you about the Jerusalem factor. Was the tomb really empty? Well, <clears throat> If we're going to try to say that John F. Kennedy has risen from the dead, the, the worst place to start that uh, story would be in Washington, D.C. Absolutely the worst place. Because that's right where, you know, he was centrally located, right where uh, a lot of what he did took place, and, you know, we'd be able to go to his tomb. And yet, the disciples started preaching this idea that Jesus has ridden from the dead in the very place where he was killed, in the very place where he was buried. Right in the same location. They didn't you know, decide, you know what, we're going to go to Rome and try to start there, and hopefully it'll get down there to Jerusalem eventually. No, they started it right uh, where he was around people who had seen him die. Anything but an empty tomb would have been devastating to the rise of Christianity. Anything but an empty tomb would have just knocked them down. Okay, you got us. But there must have been an empty tomb because of where they started preaching. Uh, another thing that I found as I was studying is you know, uh, some people have tossed out, well, maybe they didn't bring forth a body because it wasn't recognizable anymore. You know, after somebody dies, the body decays, and, you know, maybe, you know, they didn't bring it forward because no one would have recognized that it was Jesus. But there's a couple problems with that. Because of the arid climate in Jerusalem, A, the body would have been not totally recognizable, but somewhat distinctive wounds would have been easy to see. Jesus definitely had some distinctive wounds, and they would have been able to point to those. And they would have tried to, the Jews would have tried to pull out something, anything, even if it wasn't even remotely recognizable, they would have said, look, no, here's his body. We pulled it out from this tomb here. 
A third, uh, third thing to point out in looking at whether the tomb was really empty or not is enemy attestation. Early critics accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. Okay? Early critics accused Jesus' disciples of stealing the body. So, kids, let me ask you this question. If you tell your teacher, my dog ate my homework, okay? If you tell your teacher, my dog ate my homework, do you have your homework with you? No? How, how do you know? Check your backpack. It's in the dog's belly. Um, it, <laughs> if you had it, you would just say, oh, yeah, here's, here's my homework. And so the fact that the disciples are saying, or sorry, the fact that the Jews are saying that the disciples stole the body is pointing to uh, the fact that there was no body to produce in the first place. If there was a body, they would have just simply said, look, here's the body. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Easy. Done. No problem. But they started with this whole theory. No, no, no. Actually, the disciples, see, the disciples stole the body. Which, it's very easy for us to conclude. Okay, well, there was no body there to begin with. Why else would they make up this story? Why else would they come out and say this? So if the enemies are saying that the body's gone, we can reasonably land on the fact that the body's gone. You know, it's, it's one thing uh, for, for Laura to come and say that, you know, I'm great at, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> whatever it is, right? <laughs> Whether it's true or not, if she says it, you're going to call it into some sort of question because she's biased. Of course she's going to say I'm good at whatever it may be. Sewing. But if I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to get a, a sewing job and uh, there's somebody else there that's also trying to get the same job and they say, you know what, Ben is actually really good at sewing. I'm not. Um, if they say <laughs> that, there's more evidence to support that because now an enemy is saying that this is true. And they have no reason to say that it's true. There's nothing that's going to benefit them from saying that it's true. Um, so we can come to some more certainty about that. The fourth thing regarding the empty tomb is the testimony of women. And I'm not trying to pick on anybody here. Um, let me start with this. If you're trying to, if you're, if you're making up a story, if you're trying to get somebody to believe something that you know isn't true, you're going to make it sound as convincing as possible. You're going to give as many strong facts as you can. You're not going to make it look like a weak testimony. So going back to JFK and someone saying, you know what, JFK rose from the dead, we would want to include, uh, you know, well, you know, <clears throat> these uh, professional historians went to his tomb, and they were one of the first people to really do some analysis. And uh, we also had some archaeologists on the scene, and, you know, they were uh, looking at uh, the, the excavated tomb and, you know, kind of examining these things. And, you know, we, we had some, you know, medical doctors come and look at, you know, and take DNA samples. That would s start to sound really convincing. But what if instead, you know, someone said, hey, guess what? John F. Kennedy was raised from the dead. These two guys who had just escaped from a mental institution uh, were, were walking by his, his tomb, and they said that Jesus appeared to them. And, and, and then they went and told a lot of other people. I'm sorry, not Jesus, John F. Kennedy. I'm getting my stories crossed. Um, <laughs> but they go and they say, yeah, John F. Kennedy. He, he was there. We saw him. It doesn't make your story sound very convincing. And uh, at the time, okay, I'm not saying this is true by any stretch of the imagination, but at the time, Jewish and Roman culture regarded women's testimony as not credible. Ladies, I, I believe what you say, okay? Um, but at the time, women's testimony was not very credible. 
And so it would have looked bad for them to say, oh, yeah, it, it started with these two women that went to the tomb. And they were the first ones that saw it, and then they came back. It, it makes them look bad. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 24, uh, it says, uh, so the, the, the women come back from the tomb and say, hey, guess what? Jesus was raised. Jesus was raised. Luke 24 verse 11 says, but the disciples did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. The disciples didn't believe the women. And so to, to add in this story to say, you know what, here's how we know the, the tomb was empty, is the, the, the women were the first ones there and they saw it. N- makes the story look bad. So if they were making up the story, they wouldn't have used that. It leads us to believe that, no, this is actually true. That, yes, the tomb was empty. So I think there's a lot of evidence to point to the fact that, yes, there was an empty tomb. So now we've got that fact, plus our first four, and and now we can start looking at all of those and starting to put them together to say, okay, where are we going to land? Where are we going to land? And the evidence for all of those points to the resurrection. There's some other arguments that are uh, also tossed out. And maybe you've heard these before. Maybe you haven't. Um, But skeptics, before anything else, want to go to naturalistic explanations. When they hear that there's an empty tomb, when they hear that, you know, these people have been radically transformed because they claim that they have seen the risen Christ. They want to go and say, okay, well, there's got to be some normal reason for this. And we would all think the same thing if we heard a story, you know, if, if we went home and saw on CNN uh, that John F. Kennedy had risen from the dead. Okay, well, there, there's, there's got to be some reason for this. You know, let's, let's start rationalizing. And we'd want to look at different pieces of evidence. And we'd want to, you know, take a look at that. Oh, there's an empty tomb. Okay, well, let's go and, you know, maybe the body was moved. Maybe they went to the wrong, you know. And we'd call into question all these different things that so many other people have done regarding the resurrection of Christ. And we'd look at these pieces of evidence. But again, one argument may explain one piece of evidence, but it doesn't explain the rest of the evidence. You know, so sure, maybe we can try to rationalize the fact that, that John F. Kennedy's tomb is now empty, but, but what are we going to do with, you know, his entire family saying, you know what, he showed up for dinner? And what are we going to do with multiple other people saying, you know what, here he is? And what are we going to do if, you know, all of a sudden he's, he's there on CNN? Now we have to start calling in a lot of things into question and dealing with a lot of different pieces of evidence instead of just one or two. So let's look at some faulty arguments, some, some things that people toss out and, and say, no, this is my reason to kind of explain all these pieces of evidence. First of all, as, as I asked before, did Jesus really die? You know what, maybe he was crucified, maybe he fainted. Um, And and like I said before, not supported uh, by most scholars. Um, Medically, there's been tons of research done about crucifixion, about the kind of suffering that uh, happens. Uh, I would point you to uh, the case for Christ or the case for Easter. There's an entire chapter where the author Lee Strobel sits down and interviews a world-renowned forensic pathologist. A guy whose job it is to go and look at uh, people who have died and say, okay, how did they die? So this is a guy that knows his stuff, uh, and uh, he has come to the conclusion that, yes, Jesus did die. No, there is no way that he could have survived something like that. Um, Maybe you've seen the the movie The Passion of the Christ, Um, but it is a highly accurate depiction of crucifixion. And again, you can look at that and, and start to, uh, you know, question this thought. Did Jesus really die? Well, gosh, it sure looks that way. And remember, too, that these guys that were killing him were professional executioners. This was their job. This is what they did day after day after day. They knew what they were doing. 
And then again, coming back to, let's say that he didn't die and he came back, um, it doesn't depict him as a conqueror of death. And also, Jesus would be a liar. Because not once did he say, no, 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 guys, I didn't rise from the dead. You know, I, I took a long nap and, you know, that's why I'm here. Not once did he say that. He let the disciples think that, yes, he had risen from the dead. So either he really did rise from the dead or he's totally just lying. And yet these disciples followed this guy to their death. So did Jesus die? I think we can conclusively say yes. Another faulty argument that's tossed out often. Maybe the body was stolen. Well, again, remember, the disciples believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. They were not intentionally lying. Um, Chuck Colson, who was a part of the Watergate scandal uh, and later became a Christian, said this. Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, uh, perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence, that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all of those around the president were facing embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. Not a single one. Does that sound like a group of people that stole a body, hid it, and then were living out a lie? Trying to cover up. You know what? Man, we've been following this guy for three years. He died. Oh, we better save some face and, and make it look like he rose from the dead. You know what? Let's steal the body. Let's hide it somewhere. And let's go out and try to like spread this story. Every single one of them died for this. Would they have died for a story? But some more to consider. We've got the Apostle Paul who is radically transformed. Would a mere story have convinced him? Would a mere story have convinced James, the brother of Jesus? No. It took an appearance of Jesus to convince both of them. Well, maybe somebody else stole the body. Maybe it wasn't the disciples. Maybe somebody else stole it and hid it. But then we come to some of these evidences again. An empty tomb by itself didn't convince anyone except John. The only one who saw the empty tomb, the only one of the disciples, excuse me, who saw the empty tomb and was convinced that Jesus rose from the dead was John. Peter went with him and was, it says in Luke chapter 24, confused. He saw the empty tomb and was like, what's going on? The other disciples we know didn't believe until they saw the resurrected Jesus. Thomas, we all talk about Thomas. Thomas didn't believe until he saw the resurrected Jesus. And the fact that maybe somebody else stole the body doesn't explain away the appearances. Doesn't explain away the fact that here these people's lives were radically transformed by somebody showing up. So again, going back to JFK, you know, someone saying, you know what, <clears throat> JFK's tomb is empty. He's risen from the dead. That's quite a jump to make from an empty tomb to somebody resurrected. You know, and we'd go and, you know, try to rationalize that away. But if we start to add in these other pieces of evidence, you know what? You know, he's appeared to all these people. Simply saying that, you know, somebody stole the body doesn't explain away those appearances. 
So the stolen body argument does not, in and of itself, hold up against this idea. Next, a legend. Maybe Jesus was just a legend. You know, maybe he was, uh, you know, maybe he died, but, you know, this, this big story got built up about him that he, he actually, like, rose from the dead and he was God's son and, uh, you know, he, he conquered death and now we're going to follow him and worship him. Well, some people toss out, you know what, there just wasn't enough time uh, for the legend to grow. You know, like, some of our earliest writings we heard in the, in the last couple of weeks were, were from around the same time that Jesus lived. So, you know, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then just a few years later, we have writings that saying that he rose from the dead. Was there enough time in there for a legend to be formed? I would say, yes, absolutely. Because we have this guy named Chuck Norris. He's not dead. And we have plenty of legendary stuff about him. Chuck Norris doesn't mow his lawn. He just stands there and dares the grass to grow. <laughs> Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad he never cries. <laughs> Here we've got legend built around this guy, and he's not even dead. So did they have enough time to build up legend about this guy, Jesus? Absolutely. So maybe this was just legend. Maybe this was just, you know, built up and Jesus was just this normal guy and he died and, you know, there's all this story behind it that, yeah, he rose from the dead. You know, and people, you know, a few hundred years from now, you know, will write about Chuck Norris and people will look back and go, man, this guy was incredible. Um, first of all, we spent three weeks looking at the validity of the Bible. The New Testament is reliable as a source, and the early church preached Jesus' resurrection. So we know that. So here it is, written not long after Jesus died. We've got it. So the question is, then, did legend creep into Christian traditions before they put it in writing? Okay, so from the time that Jesus died to the time of the first writings that we have, was there enough time in there to put in this story to develop this legend that Jesus rose from the dead. Two things to say against that. First of all, eyewitness accounts include the resurrection. Eyewitness accounts, people who were there, who saw Jesus died and wrote about it, include the resurrection. Friends of Chuck Norris wouldn't say that these facts are true. They would, they would say, all right, yeah, that's not true. No, he does mow his lawn. In fact, I've done it for him before. Um, maybe. And then second of all, legend wouldn't have convinced Paul or James. Again, we've got these radical transformations that happened. And a legend would not have convinced either of them. Hey, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus. He's so amazing, and he, he did all these things, and then he died, and then he rose from the dead. Yeah, right. That's what they would have gotten. So we've got these amazing conversions, and that just knocks down this idea of maybe it was just a legend. One final faulty argument. Maybe it was just a bunch of hallucinations. You know? Maybe these appearances weren't actually appearances, but just people seeing something. There's uh, what's often called a group, or not, sorry, not group, grief hallucinations, where someone is so sad over the passing of somebody else that uh, they're, they're so upset that they come to see this person. But then they're very quick to, to try to rationalize it away. And when you think about hallucinations, you know, what, what goes on in the mind is, is something that's pretty confined to that one person. You know, Laura many times has uh, told me about different odd dreams that she's had. But not once has she said, 
man, Ben, I'm having this great dream right now. Uh, I'm, I'm in Hawaii. You know what? Fall asleep and come with me, and we'll, like, hang out in Hawaii together in, in our dreams. Not once, right? It's not like I can, like, jump into her dream and join her. You know, it's, it's within her own mind. Um, imagine this. 20 people are floating in the ocean after a shipwreck. One person sees a boat. Kids, how does he know he should start yelling for help? So they're all floating in the ocean, and um, one, of the, one of the people sees a boat. How does he know he should start yelling for help? When someone else sees it, I heard. When somebody else sees the boat, right? Right? Yeah. Because, like, if he's the only person that sees the boat, and nobody else sees the boat, <laughs> he's going to be yelling at who knows what it is, you know, a, a seagull or a dolphin or, you know, who knows? I don't know. Um, but he's going he's gonna to make sure, hey, do you guys see a boat? You know, and maybe these other people are so hoping for a boat that they happen to see a boat as well. But then, you know, he wouldn't stop at, do you see a boat? But start asking for specifics. Well, what does the boat look like? What color is it? What's the size of the boat? If all the people come up with the same hull number of the boat, well, then they'd better start yelling for help because there's actually a boat there. So this whole thing about hallucinations, we, uh, Jesus appeared to groups of different people we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Groups at the same time. And they all had the same experience. They all saw Jesus eat the fish. They all saw Thomas come up and touch Jesus. It was groups of people together. And so we can come to this conclusion that, you know what, they weren't hallucinations. Because if they were, different people would have seen different things. Maybe that's not enough for you. Well, hallucinations also don't account for the empty tomb. Where'd the body go? And then you're starting to have to take two different theories and kind of put them together. Okay, well, the hallucinations, you know, that, that explains the appearances. And, oh, the empty tomb, you know, the, they, they must have stolen the body. And, oh, the, the radical transformations have to be explained. Well, well, now you're just kind of fishing and starting to put things that all don't really work together together. Second of all, hallucinations don't explain away the conversion of Paul. First of all, Paul wasn't grieving the death of Jesus. He wasn't. And then uh, second of all, he was widely recognized as a highly intelligent, had a very sound mind. The way he was doesn't lead people to believe that he would have had a hallucination. We've also got the conversion of James. James was radically transformed. He wasn't grieving. Well, he might have been grieving because Jesus died, but he wasn't grieving because his Messiah, his Savior died. He didn't believe in Jesus that way. And then we've also got too many incident variances. If, uh, Jonathan, if you take your, uh, some of your Boy Scouts and go camping, you know, and all of you say, hey, did you guys see that? Oh, yeah, I saw this UFO. You know, and all of you guys start saying, yeah, we saw this UFO. Okay, well, sure, maybe it happened. But then they, they, they get back and they call into the police, hey, we saw this UFO. And the police say, yeah, we've been getting calls like this for like the past week or so from a whole bunch of different people. You start to go, okay, maybe there was a UFO. Now, that doesn't say that aliens exist and, and, and have landed, but we can arrive at the fact that there was a UFO because now we have reports from different people, different times, different places, different scenarios. And that's what we have with the appearances of Jesus. Jesus was seen by men and women. Inside, outside, small groups, large groups, individuals, day, night, all these different uh, times, places that Jesus was seen. So it didn't just happen to be at one place with this really cool smelling candle and, you know, they were all in this room together. But rather, a number of different times and places where Jesus appeared. So it doesn't make sense that it was just a bunch of hallucinations. But here's what I want to get to today. What's the point? 
What's the point of all of this? If we can, you know, come to some conclusions about, you know, the fact that, that Jesus did actually rise from the dead, what's the point? Well, our whole series is called Grow to Go. So as we grow in our knowledge, as we grow in our understanding of what the truth is, our, our mission and our task is to take it and go and do something with it. There's, there's more to this than just like, great, now I've got some great dinner trivia. It, it means more than that. So I wanted to point out two things regarding this. First of all, 1 Corinthians 15, going back to our passage, verses 13 to 18, say this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. Catch this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. This is the gospel. Don't overcomplicate when you share the good news with other people. The gospel is simple. Jesus is God. Jesus died for me. Jesus is alive. That's it. That's what people need to hear. Everything regarding Christianity hinges on this point. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Christ's resurrection is the centerpiece of Christianity. If Christ wasn't raised, there's no forgiveness for sins, no salvation. That's why turning this question mark into a period is so crucial. Because this is what it's all about. This is what Christianity is all about. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. No resurrected Christ, no Christianity. No gospel, no salvation. But there's more. And I want to read to you <coughs> out of the case for Christ. The case for Christ is by this guy, Lee Strobel, and he uh, was a guy, he was a skeptic. And he went around and interviewed people to find out if Jesus really was who people say that he is. And he sat down and interviewed this guy named Gary Habermas, uh, widely known as one of the uh, foremost scholars regarding the resurrection of Christ. He says this, before I left Habermas's office, however, I had one more question. Frankly, I hesitated to ask it because it was a bit too predictable, and I thought I'd get an answer that was a little too pat. The question concerned the importance of the resurrection. I figured if I asked Habermas about that, he'd give the standard reply about it being the center of Christian doctrine, the axis around which the Christian faith turned. And I was right. He did give a stock answer like that. But what surprised me was that this wasn't all he said. This nuts and bolts scholar, this burly and straight-shooting debater, this combat-ready defender of the faith, allowed me to peer into his soul as he gave an answer that grew out of the deepest valley of despair he had ever walked through. Habermas rubbed his graying beard. The quick-fire cadence and debater's edge to his voice were gone. No more quoting of scholars, no more citing of scripture, no more building a case. I had asked about the importance of the resurrection, and Habermas decided to take a risk by hearkening back to 1995, when his wife, Debbie, slowly died of stomach cancer. Caught off guard by the tenderness of the moment, all I could do was listen. I sat on our porch, he began, looking off to the side at nothing in particular. He sighed deeply, then went on. My wife was upstairs dying. Except for a few weeks, she was home through it all. It was an awful time. 
This was the worst thing that could possibly happen. He turned and looked straight at me. But do you know what was amazing? My students would call me, not just one, but several of them, and say, at a time like this, aren't you glad about the resurrection? As sober as those circumstances were, I had to smile for two reasons. First, my students were trying to cheer me up with my own teaching. And second, it worked. As I would sit there, I'd picture Job, who went through all that terrible stuff and asked questions of God, but then God turned the tables and asked him a few questions. I knew if God were to come to me, I'd ask only one question. Lord, why is Debbie up there in bed? And I think God would respond by asking gently, Gary, did I raise my son from the dead? I'd say, come on, Lord, I've written several books on that topic. Of course he was raised from the dead, but I want to know about Debbie. I think he'd keep coming back to the same question. Did I raise my son from the dead? Did I raise my son from the dead? Until I got his point. The resurrection says that if Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, there's an answer to Debbie's death in 1995. And do you know what? It worked for me while I was sitting on the porch, and it still works today. It was a horribly emotional time for me, but I couldn't get around the fact that the resurrection is the answer for her suffering. I still worried. I still wondered what I'd do raising four kids alone. But there wasn't a time when that truth didn't comfort me. Losing my wife was the most painful experience I've ever had to face. But if the resurrection could get me through that, it can get me through anything. It was good for 30 AD. It was good for 1995. It's good for 2012, and it's good beyond that. Habermas locked eyes with mine. That's not some sermon, he said quietly. I believe that with all my heart. If there's a resurrection, there's a heaven. If Jesus was raised, Debbie was raised, and I will be someday too, and I'll see them both. Here's the second thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18 says this, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud call, with a loud command and with the voice of the angel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. What's the point of Christ's resurrection? It gives us hope. Hope. The world wants hope. Hope that there's more. Hope that there's a plan. Hope that things will get better. And Christ's resurrection offers that hope. Some of you may have heard uh, my grandmother passed away on Friday. I'm hopping on a plane tomorrow uh, to go out to her memorial service. And one thing that has consistently been dialogued about, that has consistently been discussed through this whole time, is, you know what? Now she's up in heaven with her husband and with Jesus. And someday we're going to get to go and see her as well. We have hope. We have something to look forward to. Christ died. But the fact that he was resurrected gives us the gospel and gives us hope. So, for the skeptic, there it is. For the skeptic, I challenge you to open your heart to what the evidence says. Allow the facts to speak louder than what you've always doubted. And most importantly, let the truth give you the salvation, the forgiveness, and the hope that it offers. And for the believer, let these truths be a reminder 
of this salvation, the forgiveness, and the hope that it offers. But most importantly, don't keep this to yourself. You have people in your life that are aching for hope. So share this with them. Let me pray. God, thank you for dying for us. But more than anything, God, thank you for raising us back to life. God, without the resurrection, there is nothing to believe in, nothing to hope for, no forgiveness. And so, God, we praise you and thank you for that resurrection. God, I ask um, that for those skeptics in here, God, challenge their minds and their hearts to come and believe this. And God, for those that, that do believe, that already are convinced, and maybe today are even a little bit more convinced, God, give them the courage, give them the strength, and, and give them the words to go and share with other people. We give this all to you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.